I'm just looking out for number one. Uh, you just gotta, you just gotta look out for number one. You ever heard those comments before? I know I have at times. Now, who is number one in those remarks? Yourself, right? The person talking. Uh, the people who say things like that are are admitting, you know, I just gotta look out for myself first. You know, at least they're being honest. Because not too many people will actually say those words out loud. But our actions often speak louder than our words. And it's pretty self-evident, I think, that nearly everyone is, in fact, out for themselves. We're born that way. For example, my wife and I have had three babies now. And every one of them has been born selfish. (laughs) Now... Babies' initial selfishness may not be morally wrong, a morally wrong form of selfishness, because I think it's given to them by God in order to make sure we actually meet their needs. But just think about how often they cry. Yeah, yeah. Babies cry when they want milk or food. Babies cry when they, when they want their diaper changed. Or they cry when they're tired and want to sleep. They cry when something gets taken away from them. They cry when they get hurt or scared by something. They cry when they just want to be picked up. They constantly demand our full attention. And now. Can I get an amen from any young parents here? (laughs) It's okay, they're sleep deprived. Like I said, this isn't wrong for babies. I just point this out to show that self-interest is embedded in us by instinct. And I have to ask, how many of us have actually grown out of that self-focused instinct? Between iPhones and, ironically, unsocial or antisocial social media or selfies, selfie sticks, the rampant, constant, I mean constant, complaining when things don't go our way. I'm afraid that narcissistic self-centeredness is alive and well in probably all of us. Now here's some good news for us, though. The gospel of Jesus Christ is able to reverse this tendency in us. It's meant to. In fact, it's not just able to do it, but it should automatically begin to reverse that tendency in us. See, the gospel shows us that ultimately everything is about God, not about us. That we're to be all about Him. It helps us realize that we're not entitled to anything. We don't deserve anything good. In fact, if we, des- if we do deserve anything, it's judgment and wrath for our sin. And then the gospel comes along and it instills a true sense of worth in us from being loved and valued by God. In the gospel, we freely receive countless blessings from God through Jesus. Love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, 
freedom from guilt, eternal life, much more. And when we receive all of these things in abundance, it naturally, at least it should, turn our gaze outward because we want to share the same love and the same grace we've received with others. Finally, the gospel places us into a community of people where we get to live this out. To love others as Christ loved us. Let's go ahead and turn to today's scripture passage in Philippians 2. Philippians 2 can be found on page 980 if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you. 980. Philippians 2. I believe that we will see today how the gospel is the antidote to our self-centered ways, to our selfishness. And even though being cured from the disease of self is really a lifelong journey of transformation for us, we can certainly at least get back on the right track today. We can once again take our attention off of ourselves and place it back on God and on others. Something we really have to do repeatedly, even daily, throughout our lives. So would you please pray with me that that God would build up our community today, build up ourselves, shape our community? Let's pray. God, we come to you today as, as a part of your church, of your people here on earth. and we, And we ask for your spirit to work in us. We pray that you would convict us of sin that you would forgive our sin, lead us to your grace, lead us to the cross, and then lift us up, God. We pray that we would be inspired to live for you and to live for others, to love as you have loved us. Shape us today in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. The end of chapter 1 in Philippians Paul challenged his readers to live up to the gospel. And we looked at this last week. And he was like, above everything else, make sure you do this. Verse 27 in chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So, because of what Jesus Christ has done first for us in his living, dying, and rising again, our lives should mirror or reflect his gospel to everyone around us should live worthy of that gospel. Paul then says we can do this by standing firm in our unity, by striving for our faith together, and by staying fearless in the face of opposition. Look again, says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. When we do this, it's a reminder to everyone that Jesus is coming back. It says this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. This is what Christ is bringing in the future. And then Paul ends chapter 1 by saying that even the suffering that happens in the meantime is actually, it comes as a, a gift from God. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. 
But I want you, as we continue from here today, take particular note of how God's grace permeates these verses. Okay, how the gospel of Christ comes to us in the first place by grace. His grace empowers our standing firm. It enables our faith. It gives us courage. It's all based on his grace. He, he graciously gives us salvation instead of destruction. And he grants us or graces us to suffer for the sake of Christ, which promises great eternal reward. It's all grace, right? And it all comes from God. Now notice how chapter 2 begins. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. These two verses, and along with the two that follow it, actually make up one long run-on sentence in Greek. And this one sentence focuses on life in Christ's community, the church. What is life to be like amongst us? And Paul's words here take the form of a conditional command. It's an if-then statement. Like, if this has happened, then do this. Okay, so if... As you hear these words this morning, apply them to yourself. If this is true for you, then make sure you follow this biblical command. Okay? If it isn't true for you, it doesn't apply to you. We'll get to that too. But Paul begins, verse 1, by laying a foundation for his instruction about the community. And the foundation is, unsurprisingly, once again, Christ. Here's the gist of verse 1, how I said it. In Christ, we have the source and basis for a loving Christian community. Okay, The, the source and basis for a church's loving community is found in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have the source and basis for a loving Christian community. Now, the word community isn't actually used in this passage, but this is what he's talking about. Paul is discussing how we are to do life together as the church. And he starts with an argument from experience. Don Carson says this. He says, Paul argues that if you have enjoyed a certain wealth of experience, then this precious treasure becomes a mandate to specific conduct. It's kind of like, If you've ever been part of a loving family before, then be thankful for them. Or say, if you've ever given birth to a child before, then be a good parent. right? Or if you've been married, love your spouse. Okay, If this has happened to you, then live this way. So ask yourself as you listen, have you experienced any of this? If so, it is a treasure which becomes a mandate for you, okay? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, okay, there are four or five things there in verse 1, depending on your count. But we are totally dependent on all 
four or five of these things coming from Christ. He is the source. Therefore, he's also the reason. He's the basis for everything that follows. You can see this in the very first line where he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, in Christ, some of Paul's absolute favorite words, which refer to the believer's union with Christ and salvation. How if we believe we are united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, as if we were the ones to die and rise again. We're that closely united with Christ. Really, nothing should be more encouraging than that. Than that foundational experience of a Christian. But even the other experiences Paul talks about here in verse 1 would be nothing if it weren't for Christ. Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Other versions translate that second phrase, if there's any comfort from His love, from Christ's love. And then the Spirit, of course, is the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Christ who was sent by Christ to us. And any affection and sympathy we have is based on any affection and sympathy that He showed. Each of these things also has a communal aspect to it. These are experiences that we have while being part of a Christian community. So we can conclude, I think, Christ is the source and basis for all true, loving Christian community. If you don't get this first part, you will not be persuaded or motivated by anything that follows. Everything has to flow from Christ and his gospel. Notice, though, it doesn't really matter how much you've experienced these things. Whether a little or a lot. Whether for a short period of time or a long period of time. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort, any participation, any affection, if there's any at all. So let me ask you, have you ever been encouraged in Christ? To start with, have you ever been, have you ever experienced the salvation that Jesus brings? How wonderful that is. Have you ever been encouraged by hearing of the the cross or the empty grave? Have your spirits ever been lifted by forgiveness, by grace? Have you ever felt God's love for you, his all-encompassing love for you, which really transforms us? Have you ever experienced that? You know, if you haven't, you can today. You can find all of this in Christ by choosing to turn from your sin and turning to Jesus in faith and trust in him. And he will pour out his love and mercy and grace and forgiveness on you today. If you think of this, if you think of all that we receive or that we can receive through Jesus, it's pretty obvious why we should be encouraged, right? And being saved is only the beginning of being encouraged in Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm encouraged just about every time we gather together 
as the body of Christ? Has your life ever been enriched by worshiping Christ? By praying, by hearing from his word? Have you ever been edified by his people speaking words of encouragement to you? Have you ever been encouraged by hearing a small group praying for you before? Have you ever been energized by serving within the body of Christ? If you've ever experienced any of this at all, in any amount, you can mentally check this one off. Okay? If there is any encouragement in Christ, goes on, any comfort from love. This likely refers to both love that comes from Christ and love from others in Christ. But remember, Paul just talked about, in the previous verses, he just talked about the Philippians facing opposition and suffering. So he's like, yeah, yeah, you're experiencing suffering. But haven't you also experienced comfort in the midst of that? So I ask you, have you ever experienced comfort in the middle of a hard season of life? Maybe you receive comfort directly from God in his love, whether through his word, through prayer, through an inner peace that the Spirit gives you. Maybe you receive comfort from God's love through his people. Someone came alongside of you. Maybe wept with you. Gave you a hug. Encouraged you. Ministered to you in that time. Have you ever experienced comfort in these ways? So, check it off. All right? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, the word for participation is probably better translated fellowship. This isn't just participating in in church activities or programs. Hey, you showed up to church today. Here's the participation ribbon. No, this is actually a much deeper picture. It's of participating or having fellowship in the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So all those in the body of Christ have been baptized into the Holy Spirit. We've been immersed into this deep relationship with God's own Spirit. The Spirit is now living inside of us. We can experience His power daily in our lives. But the fellowship of the Spirit here also takes place communally as we experience these things together. So, have you ever ever felt the relational bonds that we have as believers? That's from the Spirit. Have you ever experienced a a rich and deep fellowship with one another? It's from the Spirit. 
Have you been spurred on by a Christian community before that surrounds you? That's from the Holy Spirit. And these are only a few of the myriad of ways that we experience. We can experience the fellowship of the Spirit as the body of Christ. So, if you can remember experiencing this, if you are experiencing this, whether rarely or frequently, check it off. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and lastly, any affection and sympathy... Other versions say tenderness and compassion or mercy. These are basically two sides of the same coin. Affection refers to any emotion or attitude of love that we feel for each other. Sympathy refers to the active demonstration of that love for one another. So, do you care about anyone else in the church? Has... God given you a love for them? And if so, have you ever shown that love in practical ways? By serving them or giving to them, sacrificing them, even just being a friend to them? Conversely, have you ever received this kind of affection or sympathy from others around you? Paul doesn't say, if you've always experienced this, says, if you've ever experienced this, if there is any affection and sympathy. So is there? If so, check. Now, most of us have probably checked most, if not all, of those experiences off in our mind. Some might wonder, well, what if there aren't any of those things in our lives? And I think Paul would say, there better be. (laughs) Because all of these things are things that we should already have in Christ. Having experienced some of these things doesn't necessarily mean you're saved. But if you haven't experienced any of them, then I think I can tell you, you aren't saved. Because, and you need to come to Christ and be united with him and baptized in his spirit. See, if you've come to Christ and have been saved by him, none of this is an if for you. Paul wasn't really questioning the Philippians here like I just did with you. He assumed they had this. In Christ, all true Christians have experienced encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy, and probably much more frequently and abundantly than we've ever realized. This should radically affect how we live. How could it not? Paul has laid this as the foundation. Everything flows from Christ and his gospel. And as we continue on, we're going to see what kind of difference Paul thinks this should make in us. Look again, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy... By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. So if you notice, Paul's main command to the Philippians was to complete his joy. How could they complete his joy? Through their unity, or their oneness. 
This can translate to us today, to our community at Calvary this way. In Christ, our community's goal should be to maximize joy through our oneness. We should seek to maximize joy among believers by establishing and maintaining unity. In Christ, our community's main goal, one of their main goals, should be to maximize joy through our oneness. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And let me ask you, what would have to happen to complete your joy today? No, seriously, what would, what would fulfill your wildest dreams and just bring you complete joy in life? Maybe some guy or girl going on a date with you. Maybe some financial investment you made paying huge dividends. Maybe one of your sports teams going on a huge winning streak. That's enough for you. Graduating from school, getting a good job, going on a vacation. Now listen, all those things are tied to your circumstances. All those things may bring you some temporary happiness. Maybe some lasting happiness. But joy goes deeper than that. Joy is much deeper than our present circumstances. Those things will not bring you true joy. But isn't it interesting what Paul says would fulfill his joy? He says that the Philippians could complete his joy through their unity as a church body. That's what would make him overflow with joy? Yep. He's thrilled that they already have encouragement and comfort and fellowship and, and love. And he's like, now put the cherry on top. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, we might not have an apostle to please today like the Philippians had. But ask yourself, if this would make Paul feel this way, how much more would this please Christ? If, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, he has placed in you a desire to please Christ. So today I am going to I'm appealing to that inner desire that many of you have. If you have no desire whatsoever to please Christ, then you clearly have no love for Christ. So you need to ask the Spirit to fill you and give you love for Jesus today. <laughs> because Christ is the source of joy. We can only increase in joy as we grow closer to him. As if we increase our joy in Christ, we increase our joy, period. And Paul tells us of one particularly practical way to increase our collective joy. Our community's goal should be to maximize joy through our oneness or unity. He uses four different expressions to emphasize, hammer home the same point. Now, they may have slightly different nuances, but the overall point's the same. We are to be one. Right? Look again. He says, complete my joy 
by being, having, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So we're to have the same mind and one mind. Those are probably synonyms. Last week, I said having one mind is like having like, the idea of 19,000 Raptors fans, right? All pulling for the same goal, the same purpose, the same mission, undividedly. They're just united in their cause. Paul also says to be in full accord. That's not talking about a Honda. That's actually a, the full accord in Greek is actually a very rare Greek phrase, only used this one time in the entire New Testament. And it refers to us sharing a common life. Sharing a common life. So, ask yourself, are you, or are we, sharing life together as believers? It's a good question. If not, things should change. We're to be in full accord. Finally, it says we must share a common love for each other. Paul says the same love. Hopefully that phrase hasn't been tainted for you by the recent song by that name. This is not talking about us having a similar romantic experience or expression as other people. This is talking about us sharing in Christ's sacrificial love. That we are to share in his love and then let his love flow through us to each other. That's the same love. So, how do we grow in this kind of mutual love and care and unity? You'll go to the source. Again, it's only through Christ. This is the natural outgrowth of loving Christ more and more, how it expresses itself in the community of believers. Practically, you can think having the same mind means not letting small doctrinal differences divide us. It means striving toward the same outreach goals or discipleship goals, much more. I don't have time to get into all the details, but you could probably think of implications yourself. What does it mean for us as a church to have the same mind? Being in full accord. Lots of implications there. One, I think it would imply that your closest friends should be fellow believers. Not your only friends. But who you do life together with most should have the same love. Or should be in, in full accord, sorry. being Having the same love means constantly dwelling on the love of Christ together, letting that shape how we treat each other. More on that in a moment. Because Paul is going to expand on this. He's going to expand on how to practically apply verse 2 over the next two verses. And let me tell you, if you can do verses 3 and 4, doing verse 2 is easy. But accomplishing this last point may be the most difficult of all. Thankfully, we have the Spirit's help. So, our community's source is Christ. Our community's goal is joy through unity. And third, in Christ, our community's mark should be selfless humility. The defining mark of our Christian community 
should be selflessness and humility. In Christ, our community's mark should be selfless humility. Remember, this is all, all these verses are part of the same sentence, the same point. Read with me in verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his or her own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if we've been changed by Christ's love in the gospel, we should want to do this. Matthew Harmon says, Our natural instinct is to make much of ourselves and little of others. But a heart being transformed by the gospel gives evidence of a growing desire to regard others more highly than ourselves, which works itself out in tangible words and actions. We ask, well, how do we live out the gospel in our community? This tells us how. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Which means, do only a few things out of selfish ambition or conceit. Not, do nothing. Nothing means nothing. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is the putting of yourself first. The trying to be the best. Conceit is a form of pride, also translated vainglory. It's an exaggerated self-evaluation, thinking you are the best, or at least one of the best. Okay, so ambition is trying to be the best. Conceit is thinking you are. These things lead to feelings of comparison, bitterness, jealousy, envy, anger, especially when things don't go your way. You don't get your way. And others do. As followers of Christ, we are commanded to do nothing with these attitudes or motivations. Such as judging others who you don't believe measure up to your personal standards. Such as Slandering people who you think you have messed up in the church. Gossiping about those who have personal issues that bother you. Manipulating people to attain your own goals. Think about this. What would it do to our talking down or thinking down of other people, if we stopped and thought, they are probably a better person and better Christian than I am. That is how Paul wants us to think. Did you see that? It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. One version says, consider others better than yourselves. Another says, regard one another as more important than yourselves. So, let's do a fun little thought exercise here. 
I want you to think about someone in the church. Anyone in the church. All right? Think about someone, one person, who particularly annoys you. Or bothers you. Okay? I know every single one of us can think of someone here. Right? And there may be a lot to choose from. You may even be thinking of me. That's okay. I may be thinking of you. (laughs) Now, don't say their name out loud. Okay? But get one person's face in your mind. And then I want all of us to say out loud, say all together, they are a better person than me. Okay? Let's say that out loud together. They are a better person than me. That might be hard for you to believe. So keep repeating it to yourself. Reciting it to preaching it to yourself until you believe it. Because here's the kicker. Even if they aren't better, that's how we're supposed to think. Paul says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's hard. Now, if you have a hard time believing someone could be better than you or more important than you, it's not likely your view of them that has to change. It's your view of yourself. Because what this attitude reveals in us is a stark lack of humility. Of seeing ourselves for who we really are. What we're really like. C.J. Mahaney defines humility as honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. If we see this right, if we see God in his holiness and we see ourselves in our sinfulness, we can't think this way because we couldn't be any better than others because we're not very good to begin with. Humility is why Paul felt he could say he was the worst sinner he knew. Being humble is so extremely difficult. Because humility is so very unnatural for us. It's not just countercultural. It's counterintuitive. John Calvin said, If anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is. See, self-centered pride is like our default setting. You know how on your computer or your phone, if you restore everything to a default setting, it erases all the changes and modifications you've made over time? Sets it back to the original state? Well, we humans are constantly defaulting to our original settings. From Eden. When we fell into the self-idolatrous temptation of becoming like God. The, the same pride permeates so much of our thoughts and our actions today. The same self-interest, the same self-focus, the same self-centeredness. The only way to become humble is to see how insignificant we are in the grand scheme and to recognize how great and awesome 
and holy God is in comparison. That's where this all has to start. Seeing God for who he is. And then, like Job, laying our hand over our mouth. Or like Isaiah, crying out, woe is me. Once we grasp our lowness and his highness, only then can we start seeing others as more significant than ourselves. Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Paul concludes in verse 4 with one final instruction, which is directly related to selfless humility. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Just think, what, what are your interests in life? What do you like on your Facebook profile? What, what do you take most pictures of? What do you spend your time doing? Right? Sunsets, long walks, cats, dogs, hockey, history, guitars, books, Spider-Man. The list could be endless, right? We talked about all of our interests, and we have so many of them. But think about whatever you are interested in, okay? And then maybe think uh, a more serious interest as well, like, like things, your interest in the church. Maybe you love kids, or you love youth, or evangelism. You love worship, or teaching. These are your interests. Now, Paul says... Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So on some level, you're still allowed to have your own interests. But don't let yourself be interested in only what you're interested in. Does that make sense? Don't let yourself be interested in only what you're interested in. See, I know I'm more gravitated to talk to people who share common interests with me to love, for, love them, share my life with them. I'm more prone to talk to you if, if you like baseball or superheroes. Just <laughs> fact of the matter. But we've all got to be continually pushing ourselves to make efforts to, to stretch ourselves here, to be more concerned about others' concerns, to be invested in their interests. So, very practically, even in your conversations, just ask questions to others to learn about them, to learn about their interests, their cultures, about themselves. And then, genuinely, patiently, carefully listen. And not just to gain an opportunity to share about yourself in return. No, look to their interests simply as a way to show love to them. If everyone here made a point to do this, even one time a week, or maybe even here in our church, maybe in our small group, in another program, it would have massive ramifications on how loved people feel as part of our church. Some might worry, well, 
Wouldn't this mean that my needs or my interests will be neglected? Well, no. Not if you're in a community where this is a defining characteristic. Because others will care about you, too. But even if, if your cares or needs are neglected, God still cares. God still provides. In Christ, our community's defining mark should be selfless humility. And why? Because this was one of Christ's defining marks. This is what Jesus did for us. He did nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but considered us as more important. Which is crazy, because there has never been anyone more significant than himself. I don't think there's anything that can be more humbling and at the same time more exalting than that. If you know your Bible well, you probably know what comes right after today's passage. Really, it's all part of the same passage. I wish I didn't need to split it in two. But if I hadn't, you might not get lunch. Look down at your Bibles. Let's just read what comes next. Because Christ provides all the motivation we should ever need. And he also provides the perfect example and demonstration of humility and love. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. We're going to dig much deeper into those magnificent words next Sunday. But for now, I think it would please Christ immensely. And probably complete some of my joy too. If our community here at Calvary could be shaped, could be defined by Jesus Christ and his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so unworthy of your love. We pray today that you would really show us who we are without you that we would see how low we really are, how helpless, how
how powerless, how insignificant. And then blow us away again with your love for us. Your grace to reach down to the lowest place to pull us up. God, we thank you. We worship you. Help our community live this out. In Jesus' name, amen.